Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures for the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us live for a session sometime, you can join our weekly Control the Room Facilitation Lab. It's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques, so you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com facilitation lab. If you'd like to learn more about my new book, Magical Meetings, you can download the Magical Meetings Quick Start Guide, a free PDF reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book. Download a copy today at voltagecontrol.com slash magical dash meetings dash quick dash guide. Today, I'm with Hassan Gyasi, VP of Relationships here at Voltage Control, where he facilitates and serves the partners that we work with and our wonderful facilitator community. He's also the founder of Aristotle's Cafe, where he's been facilitating dialogues internationally and training others to approach difficult conversations with grace for the past 16 years. Welcome to the show, Hassan. Thanks, Douglas. Long time no see. (laughs) No doubt, no doubt. Oh, man. It's so good to have you, and I'm really excited to lean into this conversation around dialogue and tension and all the good things that we've just been kind of digging into in our pre-show chat. But before we get started, I want to just roll back a bit and hear about how you got your start. How did you get into facilitation? It's always really fascinating to learn about how people find their way into this crazy world of facilitation that we all spend our time in. Yeah, so thanks for the question. I think for me, my journey starts really young, coming from a family where my father's from Iran and my mom is American, raised Jewish. So when I when I grew up, I was really around a lot of different cultures, flavors, tastes, opinions. And, you know, I really noticed that some cases it was turning out to be good when there was like patience and love and techniques in place. Sometimes it wasn't so good. So I think as a younger child in the family, I was kind of always trying to navigate and figure out, figure out how I was going to be able to actually, you know, hold things together and create peace in the environments that I was kind of moving about. So Wow, really cool. That's like very formative time as a young man, seeing that stuff unfold and starting to just understand the world. Yeah, I mean, I think and I never applied to be a facilitator. It never was something that I even knew was a profession. You know, what happened for me is that when I was in college, I ended up studying communication and public speaking. And then that led more to actually holding group discussions for students that were my same age and like how to have discussions outside the classroom that would let us as students learn more and practice our skills and dive deeper. And those were some of the most important lessons that I've ever learned in my life and education that I've ever had. And so just kind of continued it and just wanted to keep holding those spaces for people. Yeah, amazing. So when you were doing some of that early group work, what were some of the most memorable moments when you reflect on it? Any of those kind of jump back to you when you think like, oh, that was a real pivotal moment for me? Yeah, so I always tell the story of my trainings when we talk about tension or, or, you know, aggression. I went to a school in the mountains of Boone, North Carolina. It's a beautiful area. And we also have 
a lot of differences. And in one of the meetings that we had, one of the discussions, there was a conversation about God and religion. And there were some people that were very religious and some people that were very atheist. And I'll never forget, you know, one of the guys basically standing up and shouting in the middle of the discussion. And I mean, I was, you know, 18 or 19 and trying to figure out what I should do in that moment. And we found a way, I mean, through some conversational dialogue techniques that I did on accident to kind of settle things down, you know, cool the temperature of the room. And then actually everyone stayed for the whole discussion. And then, you know, people weren't best friends leaving, but they, at least they had a little bit more, you know, empathy for each other. Wow. Yeah. You know, it's like, as you're telling that story, I I could almost feel it in the, maybe the lower regions of my throat or like maybe my chest, you know, just kind of started to tighten up a little bit. And it's like, oh, I've been in those situations. Like, you, yeah. And it's like, man, you, especially when you are young, new, inexperienced, and just kind of thrown into the situation, you're like, oh, here I am. What am I going to do? It can be difficult. Yeah. And I think for me, like even when you're saying that, I think for me, the the benefit was that I didn't come from a really quiet or soft-spoken home. So when that happened, I was kind of like, you know, this isn't the worst I've seen, but we can make it better, you know? So I think that was one thing that I was, yeah, able to not be too wrapped up in the emotion of it, but still kind of analyze it and figure it out in a way. So like, how would you describe the technique you used as far as the approach? Yeah, so, you know, I really think that people don't have the chance to, you know, sometimes like, Throughout the day, we get emotion about different things if we're stuck in traffic or, you know, if our job's on the line or something might something might happen. And so I think people just need help practicing and giving space between one emotion and the next. And so what I did in that case, because the conversation was really at a high level and there was two people that were especially at odds and, and getting kind of towards a state that wasn't healthy, you know, what I did is I just cued it and I asked a question that brought people more into their heads instead of their hearts. And I kind of turned it to the group, the rest of the group that was a little bit more civil, relaxed, not as emotionally involved. So then they were able to say their pieces about it. And then the two that were kind of highly charged were able to settle in a little bit more and reflect and kind of think about how they wanted to act moving forward without calling attention to them or asking them to stop or you know, highlighting them more, just kind of letting them be in the group. It sounds like there's two things at play there. There's multiple layers because you didn't call them out. You kind of like gave people something to dig into. But the two things that really jumped out were you bought some time because it takes time for the energy to shift. And then also you focused them. You talked about the head versus the heart, you know, and it, it reminds me of an NPR story I heard recently where they were talking about when people are stressed out or overwhelmed, that Tetris can be very helpful because it's like a game of control. You know, they're very specific rules and you put the little pieces in the place where they go. And, and so if the world seems to be chaotic and hard to put things in their boxes, then it sounds like Tetris might be helpful. And it's a similar technique to what you did, right? You kind of shifted them to something that was a little more analytical, a little bit more structured and like, Let's just like, let's get analytical here versus like emotional. Yeah. And I think we don't always have the chance to do that. You know, like we don't always have someone to interject. And I think as facilitators, that was a really wonderful role that I've been able to play. And, you know, I need it too at times, right? So it's just nice to be able to put that hat on and kind of play that role and, and 
do that for other people. Yeah, 100%. So I want to come back to the other element because I was picking up on two things. There was one that was like the focus piece, like what you had them focus on. And the other one was kind of buying the time. That reminded me of a school in Dallas called the Momentist Institute. And they are a really interesting school that teaches children from pre-K to sixth grade. And they started off as a mental health institute, and then they started getting into education because they realized that they're really going to make a difference in these kids' lives and their mental well-being that they would need to spend more time with them and need to create more ongoing programs. And one of the tools, they had so many great tools in the school, but the one that I thought of when you were sharing your story was this thermometer. Each classroom had a thermometer in it by the door. And if a child got overheated and upset, the teacher would take the child over to the thermometer and they would say, where are you on this thermometer? Hmm. And they would point and say, I'm right, I'm up here, like way up at the top, I'm way overheated. And then the teacher would say, okay, just sit with your thermometer and until it gets back down. So it's cool because it's acknowledging the fact that there's a transitionary period. You can't just ask the child to say, cool it, because they can't flip a switch and immediately be cool. They had to sit there with it and let it settle. Another tool they had was this glitter ball. So they'd shake the glitter ball up and that'd be them all frantic, right? And they had to watch the glitter settle. So it's, it's meditation, but it's also like the time it takes to settle allows them to like transition too. So I love that... Uh, that you're kind of giving them space to let things just cool for a second. Yeah, I mean, that's, I'm, I'm just thinking to myself, I wish that, you know, I wish that we had that as adults too. I mean, a lot of times we don't get that education. And like, I think even like the words that people use, I mean, even me, like I have a limited vocabulary around my emotional states. You know, it's either, you know, happy, sad, angry. We don't do a good job describing all the states that we can be in. And I think that's an awesome example of what you just said about the, the school. That reminds me of the fact that, especially in the English language, there's so many less words to describe positive emotions than there are for negative emotions, mm. which I think is it's pretty interesting, right? Like we're really good at like describing like how bad things get, but when it comes to like celebrating how good we feel, we're not so good at describing it. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I think that's also a big piece of what is interesting about holding sessions with groups is to see, well, one is like to see how people relate to each other. I think part of what I've noticed is that just someone hearing how someone else is feeling and if it matches them, they almost, they almost feel that they spoke it themselves. They don't, they don't have the need to validate it. You know, they already feel that they belong to a group. And I think belonging is a really important part of what we need in our lives. And sometimes belonging in a negative way is easier than belonging in a positive way you know, it's easier to complain about the bad things to people sometimes than it is to sit and enjoy the nice things about life in, in some moments. Yeah, belonging is like a, a really interesting and fragile thing too, right? Because at any moment's notice, we can quickly begin to feel like we don't belong. And I think that when I hear you talk about the work you do, it really speaks to me around this concern about being tuned in to those needs. And even if it's in a moment of tension, making sure people feel that they can show up. Yeah, no, I'd agree. And, and that's another thing too that's interesting is that, you know, sometimes people when they think of facilitation or I know there's different, different ways that people do it. And like the story that I told you, I mean, I don't really want to have people standing up and shouting, but I also don't want us to shy away from tension so much 
that we don't have the critical moments that we can overcome things and adapt in those. So, you know, I think that's another thing is like, can we belong and still disagree? Can we belong and still have have heated arguments in a way or heated, you know, conversations or heated dialogues? And, you know, my answer is yes to that. And it's something that I really have found to be true over all these years, no matter where I've been. So Yeah, you know, it's something we talked about in the pre-show. You were talking about not overprotecting people, which I thought was a really fascinating concept, especially when you care so deeply about creating a safe place, a safe environment. But then, so this notion of not protecting them from the tension, but also making sure we make it safe. So I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on what that means. Yeah, it's funny because... Now I lean more towards describing the spaces that I create as brave because when I started, safe space wasn't like a thing. It wasn't something that was mainstream. So safe space for people was a reprieve, a place to practice, a place to be themselves, a place to agree and disagree. And it's kind of evolved in a different way now. And so now, you know, the the wording that I put on is brave because I think Bravery is what's going to get you to become a better citizen, a better human being. And it's tough sometimes, you know, people might show up to these discussions and they might reveal something that they don't reveal to their closest friend, their, you know, someone that they love deeply. They might share it with strangers. You know, on the other hand, they might get into a conversation that to them typically would be an argument in this space. And then it becomes a dialogue, right? It's facilitated correctly. It's facilitated in a healthy way. And for that reason, a lot of emotions come up. And I I think that those emotions are transformative. And many times those same people that might have had a tough moment will come back week after week and they'll talk about that transformation. They'll talk about how that conversation sparked a thought, how that conversation sparked a discussion that they had with someone that they should have had. And so... I don't want to protect people from breaking through in those moments. I want to, you know, embrace them in it and sit with them and accompany them through that process. When you said brave, the thing I immediately thought of as a corollary or as like a nice companion was this idea of generous, a generous space. Yeah, I love that too. That's also a really nice way to put it. When you say generous, what do you mean when you think of it? Yeah, well, because I was thinking of like this idea of asking people to be brave. And if we're asking folks to be brave, then we also need others to be generous about being willing to accept others and, and the bravery that others are bringing and being generous about our offerings, right? If we are going to be vulnerable, let's like really be true about that, right? And put it out there. So I think there's a few different ways you can apply the definition that I think is kind of beautiful. I don't know. I feel like it works in concert with this concept of bravery. So it's kind of just jumped to me. Yeah, no, I'd agree too. I think also on that note is, you know, another piece that I think about when it comes to that brave or generous space now is is that idea of, you know, we don't have to take things so personally all the time. Like I might have an idea in that time frame. It might be true for me then, but our opinions just like us evolve and and through the process of sharing them, throwing them into the center and kind of letting them get tossed around, it's something that should happen, right? It's like a healthy process to our development. It's not something that we have to hold and protect and feel so attached to, you know? So I really love giving people moments where they can go through that process and kind of flow and evolve in it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think a lot of it is about expectation setting. Folks know going in that we're going to go to some places that might feel a little uncomfortable. And we do it with intention. It's a little different than if it just starts erupting and then people get scared about, like, what's happening? I'm not used to this. It's funny that you say that because I even, at the beginning of my discussions, I, I have found for a long time I didn't say it. And I would just say, let's start the discussion. But I added the expectation in, which is we might start with one question and with more questions. You might walk away with more questions than answers. And I hope you're ready to take those into the world with you. And just that small piece of, you know, uncertainty being named at the beginning and the expectation really changed the way people reacted. And like you said, opened them to those possibilities to happen throughout it. Yeah, I love that. You know, naming the expected outcome and being clear about that intention, setting that intention with the group, because I feel like so much of the unhealthy dysfunction Kind of using your term, you talked about critical tension earlier in the pre-show chat. It's like this unnecessary tension, you know, mm-hmm. not the tension we want. It's like this unhealthy tension. So much of that is, comes from people not understanding the expectations or walking in with different expectations and being upset that they're not met. And it's just confusion, right? How simple is it just to get in front of that and say, hey, no, this is this is what's going to happen. And it's okay that we're not going to have the answers. And it's like, oh, okay. It's like, I, can get, I can get on board with that. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to know for you if there was a moment where that showed up strongly. Wow. Yeah. Well, I don't know. You know, it's like, I think for me, it's been a progression throughout my entire career. You know, I was a CTO for many years, managing lots of engineers and product folks and designers and whatnot. And just realizing that if I don't set the intention with the group and let them know what we're doing, then it's much harder to get them excited about and motivated to do what we're going to do, right? right? And so I think I just learned it organically through the years, but I definitely get reminded of it often, you know? Like if I maybe I'm asleep at the wheel or I don't do such a good job of setting things up for success or, you know, there's an example recently where I was planning a session and coaching the client on some things and hearing some things. I was like, well, I don't know if I would frame it like that. This is how I would say it. And then, you know, didn't follow my own best practice and let them send out the invite and... Sure enough, they miscommunicated everything. When everyone showed up, things went off the rails a bit. But luckily, we did have those conversations with leadership around the intention. And so they kind of spotted the root causes. And so we were able to address them. It would have been much better for the team had we understood it earlier and addressed it. So I think most facilitators have, you know, we've got, we've all got plenty of stories like that, right? Where we're, didn't quite get it clear or there's a miscommunication and then here we are in the moment and it's like, okay, someone's not feeling comfortable here and then they probably aren't clear on why we're here. And so my go-to is always stop and make sure everyone's clear on the purpose because to me, that's the number one silver bullet. You know, mm-hmm. if people are getting off the rails, just hit the pause button and go, hey, why do you think we're doing this? It's going to pull everyone, you know? <laughs> and they're like, we came for the free pizza, huh? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I don't know. I, I, the brownies were for me. <laughs> 
So what about this international nature of the work that you're doing? I'm, that really fascinates me. I mostly worked with, you know, certainly in my startup years, U.S.-based companies. And then through the pandemic, we've certainly gotten lots of global interest in our facilitation lab and our training programs. Even just today, I had folks from all over the world in, in a session that I did on liberating structures. But, um, you know, haven't done a ton of work inside teams at this like very kind of emotional attention based perspective. And I would imagine, you know, different cultures, different language, you start to get into the types of diversity that requires a lot of care and attention. Absolutely. So I've had a long history of loving travel. And so I've, I've lived in Sweden, I've lived in Thailand, I've lived in Germany, I've lived in several countries. And so my work in my life brought me around different people. And also inside the U.S., I've lived in the East Coast and West Coast. I mean, I always talk about our internal culture too, but you know, when we, when we put that into teams that are globalized and truly mixed up, I mean, in Thailand, you might have you know, 50-50 split. Half the team is Thai, half the team is from all around the world. And I think for me, the one thing that's really held true is that although there are lots of different intricacies and you know, different things that go on, I really have to say that there is a common thread that runs through all of these cultures, all of these people, and, and even how to approach dialogues, which is what I'll say is, in my experience, there's funny things that happen that are much different. Like in Thailand, they have discussions for four hours at a time. Like they want to talk a long time, you know, which is really interesting. I don't know if as Americans, we would necessarily come in together and do that for four hours straight, you know, but they, they love it. I think they're really yearning for that. And, you know, in Germany, they have their own different kind of approach or just their natural way of approaching it. But the thread that's common is, you know, people want to know about love, family, they want to know about happiness, they want to know why we're here, you know, existence, uh, all, all those different things. And I think, in the end, the interesting thing that happens, because in Bangkok especially, the groups that came together there were were really mixed up, right in the center of, of the city, and so there was a lot of diversity. And when all these different groups met, they were always so surprised that they had such different upbringings, but such similar goals, similar values, similar similar weavings between them. And so I think one of the things that I really learned throughout that process is that when it comes down to it, a lot of teams are struggling with things that are really important as like the first step, which is trust, you know, communication, understanding, empathy. And so for me, one thing that I learned is that whenever I start to speak to any person or team or group, it's it always, that's the first step that we take. And that's the first thing that I try to unravel because once that's unraveled, then everything else flows pretty easily. You know, everything else gets gets focused in the right direction. So what's your general approach to getting started in that way? Is there some kind of first step you like to take or some kind of mechanism you might like to use? Yeah, so interestingly enough, this is the this is what I'll be doing at Control the Room, you know, coming up and and that is really my approach that I've that I've polished each week over these past 16 years. It can take a lot of different forms, but I mean, in the simplest way, it's just the idea that dialogue should be a habit, not an intervention. So we try to create 
a process that's easy to follow, that people can keep up with, where everyone's included, where there's belonging, and all these things that I just spoke about at the beginning during our conversation. And that that's my starting point. And what that means too is that I also always love to allow the participants to choose their adventure, like to decide what the focus of the discussion will be and to decide kind of how it will go. And I use that as, as the boiling point to then break off and start doing other activities or, or other things to work through. So I get all my sourced information from them and then I tie that into my, my next plans. It reminds me a bit to you of sourcing from the group. One of my favorite techniques is to, especially if I have a leader or a small design group that I'm working with ahead of time, if I can get them to kind of give me a rough draft or whatever, like if they want to make a decision, like what's the rough draft of the decision? And then it's so powerful to present that and have folks just maybe tear it apart. But if I present it as if, hey, I think I got this wrong, but like, here's here's this thing. Like, what's, can you help me figure out what's wrong about it? <laughs> like, I found it really helps like get the conversation going because what was it, Cunningham? Was it Cunningham's Law? If you want to learn anything on the internet, post the wrong answer. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Yeah, I like that. Well, you know, but I have to say too, I really like what you're saying because I think sometimes people are facilitators, we put too much pressure on ourselves to come up with like the perfect start or like the perfect answer or the perfect topic. And I mean, a lot of times it's just right in front of you. You just have to, you just have to let it happen. And it's a lot, I mean, it's a lot less pressure for you. And it, a lot of times I think it ends up in a really good way, you know? Well, I want to challenge that word perfect too, because if we bring perfect to the group, is that the best thing for the group? And what I'll compare it to is imagine you're an editor and you get a, a piece of writing sent to you and um, it's perfect. And you're reading it and you're thinking, it's actually it might be painful because you might be like, I'm supposed to do something. What do I do? I can't even, I don't even see anything to change. But if it's just rough, you know, just rough enough so that you can do your job, it's actually probably more enjoyable <laughs> as an editor because you can do what you're there to do, right? You can, you can be an editor. And I think that's maybe the right fidelity. That's a sweet spot to show up as a facilitator and as a leader, right? If you, as a leader, show up with solutions that are so polished that the team can't have any voice or make any imprint on it, then, and even, even if you ask for feedback, even if you tell them you want them to have a voice, it's going to be hard for them because they're going to see a perfect solution and go, this looks great. <laughs> right? They're not going to be able to see the opportunity for a difference. Yeah. And as much as I have facilitated these discussions and asked questions, I think it's also so interesting when you throw out a question and the group goes like, we don't want to talk about that. We'd rather talk about this. And I always talk about that. Sometimes throwing out a question like that that gets rejected is really healthy for the group too, because then they really start to gel and take power over what they're going to be focused on. And that's okay at some times, right? You can, at some moments, you can let that happen. So I love your example. Yeah. That's cool, Hassan. Like, I want to just point out to the listeners that, you know, often we talk about alignment and cohesion. And what you're describing is, the group becoming a cohesive unit and saying, no, that's not for us. And if we don't allow that from time to time, so, and sometimes we might have to push them and say, no, this is important. Like we got to go there. 
But um, if we do that all the time, then we don't allow them to be a team. We don't allow them that moment to be a unit. Yeah, I love that. I never even thought about it how you're saying right now. I'll take credit for it like I did. But, you know, for me, it's just interesting because you're right. You can see that shift, right? You You know that groups that do that, well, they feel psychologically safe to challenge you, right? They don't feel intimidated by you. They also feel ready to speak up for their needs and they, they are ready to engage deeper, right? You don't, you don't have people do that unless they're engaged, right? So I, I think, uh, yeah, I'm going to take that one though. Cohesion, I like it. Nice. Yeah, do it. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit here about the connection between the life work, the personal work, the career. I know you do a lot of volunteer work and the volunteer work kind of relates around facilitation and tension and people and even just like you know honoring the fact that you know you were called to this work by your experiences in your home life so i'm just kind of curious how it just seems all so integrated and i would just love to hear a little bit about that yeah so great question i think one of the biggest things in terms of how it shows up for me is that you know One reason why I like to create these spaces for people is because I'm always trying to practice. I'm always trying to learn how to have better conversations, how to think critically, how to listen actively, how to do all those different things. And it doesn't come naturally to me. It's something that I really believe is a muscle that I have to work. So each week when I'm holding these sessions, it's really my gym, right? It's my way to work out those muscles. And it has really improved my personal life, my professional life. And I think also for me, one thing that I'm really proud of is I'm genuinely curious to meet anyone in this world. I would really would love to meet people. And that's why, you know, as VP of relationships, it's, I'm spoiled. You know, I get the chance to learn about people. I get the chance to find out about how I can support organizations, how I can support teams. And so, this this work that I've done and this kind of foundation around dialogue informs each and every aspect of my life. And, and I'm just so happy to be able to do that and um, getting to know the facilitation community and getting to know the, the groups that we work with is just, it's just wonderful. It's just a joy. So I think for anyone that might have a call with me coming up, it's just know that I'm extremely excited and curious to ask you questions and find out about you. Amazing. I'd love to hear that. And, uh, you know, I think like me, you have a clear passion for the work and it shows. Before we move on to our final moment where I just have you share our listeners with a final thought, I wanted to just get your perspective on where you think all of this is headed. You know, what's in the coming year, you know, as we kind of shift into 2022 and beyond, what do you see on the horizon? The word that pops out for me is adapt. And I, I think that we've already seen that, that throughout history, you know, people, organizations, groups that can adapt, can thrive, can can end up moving in the directions that they want to. And I think facilitation for me is really about that adaption, right? We both, as facilitators, we have to adapt to moments. We're, we're overcoming challenges during our own processes. And also we're helping enable and empower groups to adapt and thrive in these moments. And so I think, you know, there's a lot of grief and and a lot of things that we have to get through as a society, as a human race, as a global community with COVID and all that's happened. And, you know, for me, I I just hope that we can put our efforts and make impact to help other people adapt through this time because 
we need it. You know, we need to find ways to survive. We need to find ways to find hope and uh, ways to move forward in this process. I love that. It's uh, it's definitely a tender time. You know, we've spoken a lot internally about how, you know, there's just been lots of trauma for folks that it's probably still hasn't been processed just because in lots of ways we're still in the middle of it, right? There hasn't been that notion of moving through the threshold to exit. So I think there's a lot of talk about the great resignation and mm. all this. But I think that we probably haven't seen the full extent of the impacts. And I think you're right. We're going to see a lot of that in 2022. And people will just have to adapt. Companies will have to adapt. Organizations. Governments. So I think that we should definitely watch out for that. So in closing, I would love to have you leave our listeners with a final thought. Okay. I really am going to be a broker record on this, but I always find that people have this spark once something bad happens or once, you know, once they see things going awry or once they realize that their communication is off or their relationships are starting to break down. But I really want to say again, I think for me, if there's one takeaway, it would be make dialogue a habit, not an intervention. We have to live the way that we want to be. We have to become that. We have to practice that. We, it's not going to be a one-time solution that will change our whole lives. We have to practice. We have to make it a habit. And you know, the quality of the conversations that we have will determine the quality of our lives. And so I hope that people go out and have great conversations after this talk and continue learning and growing. You know, Hassan, I think that is important for folks to reflect on. And just to underscore this idea that it's not just about taking this super intentional moment when things get tough, but when things get a little bit uncomfortable on a Wednesday afternoon, are we willing to stop and have a real conversation? You know, right. I think that that work is important work, you know, especially when we're talking about an issue that's near and dear to me, and I know you and the rest of the folks at Voltage Control, but I think that uh, when, we, when we think about domestic violence and what can, what can manifest if emotions aren't dealt with in a timely fashion, and um, so I think, I think you're spot on. Like, if these conversations can start to happen productively and often, and we can get past whatever it is that's preventing us from being able to speak our truth, to speak our emotions. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And so I guess what I would say is that thanks for having this conversation with me. And I hope that, you know, we continue doing this. I hope that people join into this. And, uh, you know, it's wonderful the space that you create too, Douglas. So thanks for being part of that process and that positive impact. Yeah, I'm so glad you joined us and thrilled to have you with us on this journey. And let's just walk the walk and keep the conversation going. Awesome. Thanks, Douglas. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want more, head over to our blog, where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together. VoltageControl.com.